0: These words are, um, man, so beautiful. Um, and they're like rich, they're inspiring, they're also devastating. They call us to something that um, we may feel und- undone to be able to do. They call us to something that we may stiffen our neck to be able to do. They call us to things that we may feel unable in our own strength to do. This idea of resisting sin and turning to you and trusting you for everything. So I just ask for your help. Would you come now? Would you watch over us? Would you give us grace? Would you heal? Would you comfort? Would you awaken faith? Would you grant repentance? Would you encourage your people and strengthen them? Use your word to do that. It is powerful, the scriptures say. It says it's things like um, nourishing honey. It's bread that we eat and consume. It's also called a light to our path. It's called a sword that pierces our hearts. It's called a balm that heals our wounds. It's also called a, a hammer that breaks a rock. So would you do all that work? Would you, would you pierce? Would you soothe? Would you nourish? Would you shatter? Would you heal? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Chris, if you want me to do something different, let me know. Uh, Otherwise, I trust you to keep fighting the fight. Fight the good fight back there. I'm sure it's my fault. I just don't know how it's my fault. Um, So, all right, man. Hey, uh, if you're new with us, we started a series last week uh, around change, uh, really the idea of transformation. And it wasn't just because it was the new year. It actually, I think, is the central theme of the Christian message. If you ask, like, why did Jesus come or Why did God make a people or why do we even exist? It's about us knowing God and being transformed and changed. And so we looked last week at the beginning of this text. It's a series on change that's the central Christian message. And so therefore, we want it to be the central message of our church. We're trying to find our marching orders or our template or our philosophy of ministry or our our framework from this text. Because I think in these words, because it's the central part of the scriptures, it's what God created us for and what he promises to do it just makes a ton of sense that we would align our church in our programming our staffing our efforts our messages the way we encounter people around this text and I think it gives us a framework for change but I wonder like what you would say is the formula for change like how does change happen if you started New Year's resolutions and you're ready to see some change, like what were you aiming at for change? Because you've got a lot of options, right? You've got self-denial kind of promises of change. You've got indulgent kind of promises of change. You've got things about goals and looking forward. You've got things about going back to heal childhood wounds. You've got lots of ways to think about what we need to be able to change and maybe all of those things are really healthy but I think when the Bible describes how change happens we see a consistent pattern of three things. What we looked at last week was the essential part of knowing Jesus. There is no change, no real transformation from the inside out without Jesus. So the Christian message is that because of what Christ has done you actually can be changed But you can't be transformed without trusting Him. It's the essential starting place for change. So so we trust Jesus. And then the text says in lots of places that we turn away from other things we have been trusting. Because before maybe you were introduced to Jesus and maybe this is your life now as you kind of wrestle with how to live and how to survive and how to engage relationships and how to move forward in the world around you, you. You were trusting something else before Jesus. So the Bible has this consistent message both to those who don't know God and those who are following God to turn away from other things that they've been trusting, to, to repent, to, to leave those things behind. This text we use language like garments of clothing that you take off the things of the past, the other things that you used to trust. It's a word for repentance or unburdening. And then the third component is not just to kind of be exposed there to take these things off, but to put something else on, to learn to walk in grace, to to put on the things of the Spirit, to follow the commands of Jesus. He didn't just call us to kind of academically trust Him and stop doing bad things. He called us into a life in the kingdom. So it's trusting Jesus, turning away from other things that we've trusted, and then looking to Him to teach us how to go forward. I just want to encourage you with a couple of other places where we see this pattern. This is what I described was verses 1 to 17. 1 to 4 in this chapter 3 of Colossians is this trust in Christ. 5 to 11 is repentance. And 12 to 17 is learning how to walk by the Spirit. But if we flip over just like one page to Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, you'll see the same pattern. He's talking to, to Gentiles and so he says, those who've been on the outside have been welcomed Then He says, To them God made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of His mystery, which is Christ in you. That, that's the good news of the gospel. The, the hope of glory. It starts with that. It says, Him we proclaim. He's the center of everything. And we warn everyone, saying turn away from these things. And we teach everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we see the hope of glory is Jesus. There's a warning to turn away from things that we used to follow and then a teaching or an instructing or a learning about how to actually follow God. Uh, We see it again in Titus chapter 2. Hey, I would love for you to write this down if you're taking notes. I would love for you to memorize this text. It's a beautiful passage. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We see it actually twice. You see this rhythm two times in this text. This is verse 11 in Titus chapter 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the Christian message. That's what Christ came to do. Verse 12, and this trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So hearing the good news of the gospel has a training impact to turn away from the things of the world and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Not just stopping something, but moving towards something that has this godly life. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It has this future orientation. And then he says it again in verse 14. This one who we wait for, he gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus died because you couldn't save yourself, you couldn't heal yourself, you couldn't make yourself right with God. He died to redeem you from all the things that you have done. Things that you've thought, things that you've longed for, things that you've acted on. Things inside and outside. He died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for Himself, a people for His own possession, to, to not just forgive us, but to actually purify us, to have us repent and turn away from those things so that we would become zealous for good works. This pattern is all over the place. We see it also in like 1 Peter chapter 2. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. He died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then this beautiful promise that By his wounds we have been healed because of what he did. Change is actually possible. For we were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Okay, last week we spent time on this first component. And they're not like three test tubes or three distinct columns. They obviously overlap and they intermingle. What we trust with Jesus influences how we see what we were trusting that wasn't him and leads us to actually change. But but we want to focus it kind of distinctly on each of these parts. Last week in chapter three of Colossians one to four, we just talked about the good news of the gospel that because of what Jesus has done, you can be set free. You can be forgiven. Your life can actually be transformed and changed. He offers you salvation and the forgiveness of sins, moving from death to life, which just please understand this. The Christian invitation is not to living better ways or learning newer things. It's actually about going from death to life. That's the essence and the center place of the gospel. But that looks like something in real life. So to say that is actually then to invite us to something that looks like real freedom, which gets us into this text in chapter 3 verses 5 to 11, which is where we'll focus this morning. Okay, here's what I want to do. I just have two points for my sermon. How about that? One of them has five sub points, but I only have two, two points. One is the essential nature The essential need to execute sin. The other one is the essential need of Jesus for the enablement to do that. The essential need to execute sin and the essential enablement of Jesus is what I want to see in this text. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians. It's on page 984 if you have closed that Bible in front of you. And I would love for you to have a Bible in front of you. Pull it up on your phone. Don't like tweet and check email, but pull it up on your phone. If you have an app there, and if not, that there's a black pew Bible there in front of you. You can take that home if you don't have a Bible. But look with me at these beginning words. Put to death. I chose the word execution rather than repentance or unburdening or seek forgiveness. Not that those aren't part of it. This is a violent word. It's an active word it's an aggressive word it's a costly word it's a word that has effort to it he says put to death therefore what is earthly in you there is an essential call to christians to execute to put to death the things of the flesh the things that we used to engage with before we go any further can i just say to you if you like are prone like me towards shame shame is such a common companion for me i can hear any correction and I go straight there first It's the first stop on any train I'm on is shame and even like a reverse of that which is pride which is like a shame is a softer version of pride that's just kind of where my mind goes if you hear this and already you're going oh last night oh gosh last week oh man the pandemic I, I already feel condemned can I just encourage you with these words what Jesus is offering us, what the New Testament is saying to us, the reason why Paul is putting this here to us is actually for liberation and freedom. When the Bible calls us to put to death the things of the flesh, it's not to rub your nose in things. It's not to shame you. It's actually to free and to liberate you. Because remember where we were last week, sin is death. It's slavery. It's slavery. It's not stuff that's quirky about you that you're trying to get over. It's not habits that you would like to be freed from. It's not simply sensual or indulgent things that you get embarrassed by when you get caught. It's actually death. So to call us to put to death the things that cause death is actually really, really, really good news. It starts with a hopeful call to freedom. But I don't want you to miss the essential nature of that call is to put sin to death. He's going to use that first, and then he's going to go on to give like a clothing illustration. So, first he says, You have to kill this, and then he says, You have to strip this off. Look with me in verse 6. He says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And he names anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. After he's lamed in Chapter five, this or six, sexual immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire and covetousness. He's given us quite a bit of lists here. He says, you must take them off. You must put them all away. And he says in verse nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have already put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Okay, so one metaphor is a death killing metaphor. The other one is an interesting clothing metaphor where he says, take off these things and it has a lot to do with your identity. With the way you think about being dressed, even in our culture and age says a lot, your economic status is about what tribe you belong to, probably what area of the country you are from, what you prefer, maybe what you're doing, your clothes would be shaped by that. In the ancient world, your clothes were often a form of economic security. That's why Jesus talks about like we you have garments and to not bury things where they can have moth and rust to destroy and when you have one garment, you should give away the extra one that you have. Like it had something to do with our economic status. So it's not simply like take off these old clothes and put on new clothes. It's about identity. To, to take off the things of the flesh and then to put on the things of the spirit. So, so repentance is moving one direction and stopping, realizing it's death, and then turning and going another way. And he gives kind of two categories, one of sensuality and one of anger. This is scholar in T. Wright, he says this, these verb lists that we see, these two lists of vices, one relating to sexual sin in verse 5 and 6, and the other related to anger, the two lists are classic statements of the way in which Christians can be untrue to themselves and, more importantly, untrue to God. By bluntly naming sins, which are often uh, excused or glossed over with euphemisms, Paul sets a clear standard for the church, both ancient and modern. Many Christians tend to concentrate on one list or another. He gives a sensual list, and then he gives a, a, an angry relational list. And he says, many Christians, your tribe, your, your background, tend to concentrate on one list or another. We know of Christian communities where they would be appalled at the slightest sexual irregularity, but which are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting gossip, and bad temper, and conversely, we know people who are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony with each other that they would tolerate actually flagrant immorality. The gospel ever leaves no room for behavior of either sort. I spent some time just wondering, like, why does he give us two lists? And to see in there both sex and sensuality, the, the comfort and the approval that would come from those things, and then anger, the relational frameworks of how we treat people with control and power, and then to stop and say, oh my gosh, we tend towards one of those two. Just think about like, how you see people, how you see yourself, what you are concerned about, other kind of communities. You think about progressive and liberal and conservative. You think about, about where you are in the country. You think about what's a concern for some people. The Scripture then kind of helps us see both sides. this sensual side and this relational side. Let me just read, read these words out loud. This is chapter 3, verse 6. He says, Put to death what's earthly in you, sexual immorality. Anything that's outside the bounds of a marital union between a man and a woman is what that word covers. And then impurity and, and passion, And not just all desire, but evil desire. And covetousness, right? Coveting thy neighbors. Wife, coveting thy neighbors. Stuff which is idolatry. He ties it to worship. So he names this sensual using of people for comfort and approval. And you would say like, yeah, those people need to straighten up and stop doing that stuff. And then he turns to another kind of community, another personality perhaps, another, another form of woundedness, another bent, and it says this, but you might also put them all away, the anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. And don't lie to one another See, you've put off the old self with its practices. You see both of these lists, they're dehumanizing lists. To engage with people in these terms, to commodify them or to reduce them down to something to be managed or controlled is incredibly dehumanizing. So he names kind of two versions of that and calls Christians to stop and put those things to death, to stop and take those things off. I wonder if we could just stop here for a moment and if would you just hear the good news of the Gospel that Jesus died to set you free from the things that you've been in bondage to. He gives this command to Christians. This is not to those people out there. This is to Christians, which means both you need to hear it and you can do it. We'll talk about the enabling nature of the Holy Spirit's help to actually engage that, but He's calling us to violently, aggressively, with tons of effort, put to death the things that we are drawn to for comfort and approval, and things that we're drawn to for power and control. And you could just examine your heart and your life, and I wonder if some of the tension you feel in your Christian faith is that you're not trying to do that. You're not trying to put it to death. Maybe you're trying to get over it. Maybe you're trying to manage it. There's a difference between killing sin and then putting it in a cage. Watching it. Keeping it. Maybe you'll need it later. And I, know I don't want to let it out very often, but when I'm by myself, when I'm on a business trip, when nobody else is around, when I'm super stressed when the kids have been that way all day, then I can open up this cage just a little bit and soothe, control, get what I need to make it through the day. I wonder if some of the tension you feel is because you're like wearing both sets of clothes. You're trying to follow after Jesus and do the things He calls you to, but you're not taking off the old things. And maybe you've been skillful in converting some of those things to things that are more socially acceptable, but they still drive you at the core of who you are. So so if repentance is walking one way and then turning and walking another way, that's actually fairly simple. What's super hard is to try to walk both directions, right? And I won't do it for very long, but you can just imagine how wide your stance would have to get trying to reach But what was the old way while you're saying, no, no, I believe this, I want this, I I long for this. And I know this hurts me and hurts other people, but man, for that moment it feels so great. But I know I need to actually come to church and be in community and I need to give and I need to be kind and charitable. And so I'm trying to live in both worlds. And I feel torn, actually, between those two worlds. Maybe that describes your experience and maybe you're frustrated with Jesus Because you're going, hey, I was told, trust Christ, everything gets better. Now I feel like I'm constantly doing the splits. Relationally, emotionally, spiritually between two worlds. Can you hear the good news that what God's designed for you is to put this to death so you can turn towards this? With that clothing illustration, maybe you could be comical for a moment. And remember that scene, the comedic and then let it kind of be piercing for a moment. But can you just imagine wearing all those clothes? All the old way, the things that worked, the things that made you happy, the things that got you relationships, got you promoted, got you comfort and approval. And you're told to turn away from those. Or your reflex towards anger, your reflex to actually controlling you. You're so drawn to that. It's such a reflex. It's so quick to grab. And yet you know it harms. And it doesn't actually produce the life that you want. So you're trying to move this other direction as well. Paul lays out for the Christian what is consistent in the biblical teaching of a putting to death what would harm us. And again, it's not because it's simply like embarrassing. It's because it's death. The Scripture elevates our understanding and our world does everything it can do to push down the weight of sin to make it something that's just something I want to overcome or, or manage or keep in a cage or just kind of get through or not be too embarrassed, not let anybody know about it. But the Bible is graciously beautifully helpfully clear to say oh no no friends this is death so in Romans 6 when the question is like if I live by grace if my hope is in Jesus then why does it matter what I do shouldn't I actually go on sinning so that grace can abound and you get this answer may may it never be no way because sin is death it's not because you have to add to your forgiveness it's not because God will hate you if you sin it's because it is actually death I spend some time here because as a community, if we're getting our cues from this text and we're asking what kind of a church do we want to be? We want to be a church that pursues holiness. A church that offers liberation to captives. It doesn't just say it out loud but, but lives it and models it and creates pathways for people to actually step towards freedom. This call is consistent throughout the Old and the New Testament like a Deuteronomy 30. Moses says, see today I set before you both life and death. Jesus will say, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. And why do you say you love me, but you don't do what I command? Even the Great Commission, Jesus says, would you go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey me, to stop doing this and to turn towards this. We come to passages like Romans 8.13 that says, if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Hebrews 12 says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. These are intense passages meant to help us understand the severity of what's going on so that when we see words like execute your sin, we don't go, yeah, somebody else ought to do that. And Maybe you hit this first list of sensual things and you say, yep, not on my list. It's not the way I'm wired. It's not the way my gender struggles. It's not the way I was raised. I've never actually indulged in those things. I'm off the hook. Which is why he circles back to another kind of of engagement to help us see actually the depth of our brokenness in those spaces what we see is that God is inviting you to freedom and there's an essential call to holiness in the scriptures one of the temptations and you see it all over the place in the scriptures and in our culture is to misunderstand grace to say it's only about forgiveness and not enabling you to actually then put these things to death the call to actually crucify this and to slay it and to to kill it is rooted in the good news of the gospel but but it's not just the automatic things that happens the christian life is actually meant to have this exertion and effort to it by god's grace by his spirit but it is a sweaty effort thing you you have to kill it you have to put it down you have to fight And and I just want to ask you to examine your life and ask, where is the fight? How are you doing in the fight? What, What are you cutting off? What are you putting away? What are you actually removing? What are you avoiding? What are you not doing? Because it may not be sinful, but it might lead to something that would actually tantalize your heart. It might lead to some belief that would actually engage in your anger and how you see people. And now you say, oh, Pastor... You're getting into legalism. You're going to say now we're a church that actually kind of is compelled by doing the right thing. I want to say yes. Yes. A thousand times yes. We want to put to death these things so that we can move towards the things of the Spirit. And that is not legalism. It is freedom. It's not shame and rubbing your face in it. It's not ranking each other. He's actually going to put this like a beautiful, equalifying, qualifier at the bottom of this saying we are in the same space regardless of your background regardless of where you come from regardless of of your heritage all of us are in the same boat verse 11 says but he calls us to holiness and I simply want to camp here for a moment because I don't think you will be able to engage the good news of the gospel fully unless you let the weight of this text hit you for what it is we want to be a people that step away from sin So, so you have to slay it one scholar said, and then you have to strip it off. You have to put it to death and you have to remove it. And it's something that you do. By God's grace is enabling power, but, but you're the one who does it. This is Dallas Willard says this, that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. It's actually meant to change and transform us. Okay, I want to move into this enabling power. I want you to kind of feel the weight of it. I want you to understand the the cost here. I want you to see the way the Bible talks about, about sin. But if we just move on to the next point without stopping for a second and going, hey, where are you with that? I fear we would move towards just simple theory. Can you just take a moment? I'm actually going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a second. We're not done. Just bow your head and close your eyes for just a second. What is the thing that you need to put to death? Where are you stuck? What keeps haunting you? What is the place that you keep excusing? What's the one more time thing about your life? Where do you feel overwhelmed? What are you hiding of course i'm speaking primarily to christians this passage is primarily to christians if you're in the room and you're not a follower of jesus would you hear this is not like a, a self-effort thing we can put these things to death because of the death of jesus there's a gospel offer even in this invitation to put this to death to realize that christ himself died in our place so that we could actually be free for you the invitation is to trust christ but for christians would you just give name to this thing and I wonder if by the time we're done today, you would have the courage and the clarity of mind to say, I'm going to take a step. I want you to name it so that it feels real. I want you to name it so that we're not just talking about stuff in the room. I want you to name it because it has a real impact on your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander. I've seen talk, lying and deceiving, and any other thing that you might think of. Did you just say a prayer now with that and ask for God's help? You named it. You probably taste it. Did you just ask for God's help? Amen. Okay, so the passage is pushing us towards something practical and beautiful. Our church who doesn't want to just talk about change and transformation in theory or ideas, we want to make pathways for you to actually step towards freedom. Our groups, our teaching, our counseling is aimed at this, to help you see it for what it is so you'll take it off and step away from it. And again, you have these categories of sexual and relational, but, but the Bible doesn't stop there. It, it goes to all kinds of spaces. You get these summary type categories just to kind of open up our eyes to what we actually need. So, with this call to execute sin, now hear the good news of how that might actually be possible. Because if now you're hearing, okay, I'm going to take a step, I'm going to do this by myself, I'm going to work really hard, and then God will be pleased with me, you're moving into that space, not of effort, but of earning. A Christian can stay in a spot of effort, realizing God is the one who actually helps. So, Philippians chapter 2 says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a ton of effort, that's a lot of grit, that's a lot of sweat. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. Put it to death. Make sure this thing happens. Stop doing the splits. Take these clothes off. Put these clothes on. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to act according to His good pleasure. So Christian, you work because God is at work in you. But we can't say because God is at work in us, I don't have to do anything, which most of us are tempted to do. There's a pastor. Named Kevin DeYoung, and he has a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. It was really informative to me, really corrective for me. Because when I heard the good news of the gospel in kind of a central way, when it became like this, the heartbeat of everything for me, there was a temptation to move towards what felt like stepping off the gas towards holiness, like lightening up just a little bit and trusting Jesus. Because I came to faith in a community that told me the kind of music I listened to determined whether or not I was right with God. Who I danced with, or if I went to dances, that was a big deal. Like the kind of kind of engagement with like every single behavior was how I proved my righteousness. And actually, because of the way I'm wired, I was decent at it, and it made sense to me, and I don't like to dance anyway, and so it was a beautiful framework for me. So when I heard the gospel, I was like, oh, I'm free from all of that. And Kevin DeYoung calls it a gospel pancake where you take the good news of the gospel that's meant to liberate us and free us and you squish it down just to say forgiveness. And the tragedy of that is you leave people with the effects of this immorality and sexual struggles and passions and evil desire and in the throes of anger and malice and slander to only talk of freedom with no talk of effort or divine enablement to effort is actually to leave people kind of really close to their slavery. To leave people still near to their traps and the death and they never actually move forward. So so I want you to feel it because I want to push us towards the enablement of the gospel but not to take away the gas pedal of your heart that says, oh man, Christ has allowed me to be zealous for his holiness. To make a people that are zealous for good works, Titus 2 says. So, so the enablement is all over this passage. Let me just highlight five things for you. How can you do this? How can you execute sin? How can you actually engage with these things? These are really big things. And again, I realize most of you have been struggling for like a long time. Like a lot of you there in the room are going, hey, pastor, you're not saying anything I don't know. I know firsthand the negative impact of all that in that list. I. That's my childhood. That's my marriage. That's my work. That's my relationship. That's how I Talk to my parents. It's how I relate to my children. I know that list. It haunts me. So how do you actually have hope for change? In this passage, there's at least five enabling promises or frameworks to help us. The first one is simply this. Because of what Christ has done, you are free. There's a gospel enabling. We go back to verses 1 to 4 in this. Because you've been raised with Christ, you can seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ has already made a way for you to be forgiven and set free. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Do you remember from last week? Your past is covered. Presently He's with you and He will be with you for eternity. Your shame, your present struggle, and your insecurities are rooted in a gospel promise of what Christ has done you have to execute sin jesus has made it possible for you to actually do that by breaking the power of that sin one pastor said there is no sin that you can be freed from that you haven't first been forgiven of it's all about him from beginning to end we said last week everything is about him the entire universe is about him everything exists because of him he's the preeminent one even your biblical word or big church word, sanctification or becoming holy or taking these things off, putting stuff to death, even that has its beginning in what He has done for you. The Bible talks about these promises of what's true to motivate the commands of what you must do. If you're into grammar, it would be indicatives. This is true. Calling for imperatives. These are the commands. Because of what Christ has done, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. But don't miss the putting to death is my plea with you this morning. There's a gospel truth that gives us a functional way to move forward that doesn't move towards pride and arrogance. It knows that I was enslaved and dead and lives in joyful, thankful response to the grace of God to actually step away from those things that used to come so naturally, that used to actually enslave me because of what Christ has done therefore it says put to death therefore that's logically connecting to what he's been saying about what Jesus has done do you see that there in verse five there's a gospel enabling that's the first one the second one is an awareness of the weight of sin okay so he's going to move through like a couple of motivations he's going to give us five which is really good news because there'll be different days where you need different ones of these Maybe you can hold all of them like in a sampler platter. and You could see all five at one time. But most of us, sometimes it's the fear that motivates us. Sometimes it's the love that motivates us. Sometimes it's the awareness of freedom that motivates us. Sometimes it's the desire for something different that motivates us. So we start with the gospel motivation. And then he says very, very plainly, hey, the weight of this brings about the wrath of God. So verse 5, "...put the death therefore what is earthly in you. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, what's earthly?" sexual and impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And you can go down the list. Anger, wrath, slander, malice, obstinate talk. Put it all together. Take those things. Put them to death. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's a gospel motivation. And there is a beautiful, gracious, potent warning. This is not like stuff about your personality that you should get better or you're going to get embarrassed. This is not like little things that you want to work on over the next decade. This is stuff that deserves the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coming because of these things. For the Christian, it awakens us to the weight and severity of sin. And it also has a warning that is motivating us. It's true that a Christian can't lose his salvation. That is totally true. It's also true that those who are saved begin to look like they are saved and liberated. The the captives that have been set free actually live as captives who have been set free. And the Bible knows no assurance of those who thumb their nose at the warnings of God's wrath and say, whew, not me. Trust in Jesus. I can do whatever I want. That would be actually crazy. It would actually be crazy. As appealing as it is to our flesh, because then I could do the splits and do both. I could grab a hold of all the stuff I wanted in the flesh, and I could claim to be rightly related to God. As appealing cognitively as that is, the experience of it would tore you apart, and it actually would be dehumanizing to you. It actually would talk about the impotence of a gospel like that. that couldn't actually save or rescue or redeem. So, So to warn of the wrath of God is to actually motivate Christians. Hey, the thing that you're wrestling with deserves the wrath of God. He died to bear the weight for that. And for you to indulge in it would not just be really confusing, it would be super inconsistent, and it would be very, very dangerous. To be a church then who talks sober-mindedly about the weight of sin, that it invites people to real freedom, not just academic or cognitive or intellectual freedom, but real life freedom. Freedom means we must understand the severity of these things. We must actually move away and take them off. It's not about achieving things, but it is about embracing the freedom that Christ has called us to and stopping to realize the weight of what these things are helps us so much. And we live in a very confusing world, friends, where you're a consumer that's being targeted and marketed to all the time. So you actually believe the highest good is your own self-fulfillment you expressing yourself the way you desire and long to that's the highest good in our culture and the bible knows nothing of that What the bible knows of is to die to our sin and have our righteousness related to god and him be the one who actually satisfies us him be the one that actually instructs us him be the one that we obey that we follow, that we move towards. So even like to talk about the wrath of God, I realize for a number of you, it's like so bizarre and strange. Already you're like, hey man, I brought a visitor today. Can you please move this along? This is pretty uncomfortable. Hey, but visitor, would you hear? God loves you enough to call a spade a spade and say what it is. Jesus came and died because the weight of our sin deserved the wrath of God. So gospel motivation A motivation to understand the severity of sin and and a warning in that. Hey, if you find yourself excusing your sin, not being motivated to change, and I don't mean struggling and feeling stuck or or two steps forward and one step back or one step forward and two steps back. I don't mean that. I mean when you have actually numbed your heart and said, I don't care. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it means you're in a very dangerous place. And the longer you stay there, the danger would just increase. He's talking to Christians to say, hey, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And a Christian hears that and goes, oh man, that's right. That's why Jesus died. I want to step away from those things. All right, thirdly, it's a gospel part. There's a severity part. Thirdly, in verses 7 and 9, we see that, that He's already made us free. The Bible motivates us by what has already happened, by, by who we already are. He says, and these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away. And he names this list, right? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you have already put off the old self with its practices. He reminds you of what's true because of the gospel. Hey, you've already taken these clothes off, so don't put them back on. Don't put these clothes back on. When you trusted Jesus and you asked for his forgiveness, you took these Clothes off and you were clothed in Christ's righteousness. You were hidden with Christ and God, He gave you new garments. So so don't put these things back on. You've already taken them off is the logic. And in that space, there's this beautiful reminder that God has already done what we needed him to do. And, and we already are being changed. We already have experienced some change. And so stop and remember that. Because the allure of the old way is so strong. Just stopping sober-mindedly and saying, Oh wait, that's right. I don't have to do that anymore. The reflex is there, the pattern is there, the expectation is there, the, the, the availability of that is there, but I don't have to move towards that. Let me give you another passage, something real similar. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. If you take a note, you can just write that down. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 to 11. It says this Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's that warning again. Do not be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who struggle with homosexuality, nor Thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers—I'm actually was practice homosexuality, not struggle with homosexuality. I want to be really careful. Nor men who struggle, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This passage, like so many others removes the shame that so easily entangles you by saying, hey, that's been your past. You've been washed. You've been set free. You're no longer identified that way. You were that way. That was true of you. And that unrighteousness did deserve the wrath of God. But Christ took your wrath. You actually are set free. Live into the identity of what he's made possible. And so you take these things off, he says, having put off the old self and and the great news is you don't just take off clothes and then stay exposed and naked. You actually put on. So in verse 12 next week, we'll look at what we put on. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bear with one another and forgive one another and on, and on and on it goes. Put on these clothes. But he motivates us by remembering who we are and what God has already done for us. There's something about identity that motivates us. I love the way the message translates this. He says this don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you have stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item is a new way of life. It's custom made by your creator with its label, with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. All the old fashions, the old ways of protecting and soothing, are now obsolete. Fourthly, he says, hey, you are being renewed. Verse 10. The gospel has set you free. There's a warning of the severity of sin to clear our minds. He reminds us of what's true. And then in verse 10 he says, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's saying it actually is getting better. It's actually being transformed and changed. It's actually healing. It's actually growing. It's actually being... Renewed, Where you are right now, trusting Jesus is enough to forgive you of your sins and His Spirit actively at work in you is continuing to renew you. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 would say, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, this old way, these old clothes, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants to actually change your affections and, and heal you. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16 is a fascinating passage. He says, this, don't be conformed To the passions of your former ignorance. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, so you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. There's a renewing, a seeing, an understanding trusting Christ for my righteousness, seeing the severity of it, knowing what's true about me, and engaging with the Spirit of God to actually see my heart moved and transformed. Hey, as an application, as a church, we want to be a kind of church that's honest about our brokenness. That's why we confess our sins every Sunday. And these liturgies are trying to give us a language so that we might actually know how to talk to God. And we see, like, again, these kind of lists, and so we don't want to leave things out. We want to be exposed. to, Oh, yeah, that's also near the heart of God. I haven't even thought about Greed, I hadn't thought about neglect of the poor, I hadn't thought about people overseas, I hadn't thought about my pride and arrogance, I hadn't thought about the words that I used, I hadn't thought about blank. Growing up in that community for me, that fairly legalistic community that was zealous in so many ways but had some massive side effects, I actually limited my understanding of my own holiness simply down to lust, how I was fighting lust. So I'm a teenage boy going through all the stuff that makes a ton of sense. But I remember thinking, like, that was the sum total of how I'm doing. If you ask me how I'm doing with Jesus, I would reduce it down to that. How hard am I fighting and resisting lust? The reason why we have these confessions every week is to open up our understanding to see how much there is that God wants to free us from. To give language for confession, again, remember, is not to to shame you. It's to actually liberate and free you. So we actually start something new on your bulletin There's a little QR code that you could scan that. It'll take you to the day's prayers. In our newsletter, we're going to put the songs and the prayers because if we're saying these are words to help our hearts, I want you to have these words. Sometimes they'll be brand new words. Sometimes they'll be ancient words. Sometimes they'll be words straight out of the scriptures. But words to talk about what's going on inside of me so that I know what is being renewed. So that my scope of how I see what I need is actually expanding. And then finally, the fifth thing. Christ is all... And in all. What a sweet word on the eve of Martin Luther King Jr. Day to think about the way the gospel liberates us from the racism and prejudice, which would have been rampant in the ancient world. These are categories that would rank and kind of be about socializing people. They they would be ways that you would think about class and status. One scholar says this these intermingled distinctions of race and ancestral religion and class and caste provide the best soil for the mutual suspicion and distrust which turns these vices into practice that we see listed in these texts. Which means this, when you see people as the other, it's so easy to take advantage of them. When you see them as the other, it's so easy to abuse them. When you see them as the other, it's easy to be angry with them. Online, in person, sensually or relationally. There's a ton in this passage, just in verse 11. We should spend actually months there sometime. But at the very least, what he's saying is, the gospel gives us this equal footing where all of us are seen both as sinful and redeemed. So it it removes the ranking, not the distinctions. He's going to give instructions to slave and free. Another list in Galatians talks about male and female. He's not saying there's no longer distinctions there, but there's no longer equality or inequality or ranking or, or some sort of class caste system in that. So there's an equality there that actually then changes how we think about people. So, so what I'm clicking on for my own pleasure, if I'll stop and see that as a dehumanizing endeavor, not just something to tantalize me, it changes how I engage that. To roast somebody and say something that's just going to zing them online, to remember that's somebody's mom or somebody's dad or somebody's kid. There's a, that's a human on the other side of that reading actually humanizes them there's something about the gospel that gives dignity to all humans that changes the impact or the allure of sin that's what's going on at least and at the very least there's an invitation in that hey no one is outside the bounds of grace no one's outside the bounds of the good news of the gospel no one is excluded from the claims and they can actually turn if they'll repent and trust christ they can respond regardless of your background regardless of where you come from regardless of how you're seen by culture Because Christ is all, he's everything, and he's in all. It's all about him. Which is why we take communion every week to remember what he's done for us. Remember how we actually have hope for these things to be made possible. There's a renewing of our mind and there's this humanizing thing that happens in the gospel. Even Christ dying for us who are outsiders to welcome us in, which pushes against the shame that you might be feeling right now. The overwhelming sin you might be feeling right now, to hear, hey, Christ died, set you free, he loves you, wants to make a way for you to be forgiven, you can actually execute and kill sin because of his enabling grace and power, and his broken body and shed blood is the way he accomplished that. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? I'm going to move now to take communion, but as we do that, I want you to go back to this thing that you remembered about where you want to fight, what you want to execute, what you want to put down you just ask the Holy Spirit in the next 10 minutes to give you steps towards engaging that? Steps towards holiness, steps towards moving towards healing and freedom. As you come forward, if you're a follower of Jesus and you take the bread and wine, would you remember what Christ did to make it possible for you to be forgiven and free? You'll tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup, and it'll remind you that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat and pray and ask him to speak to you. What he offers you is liberation and freedom and help and forgiveness. He offers you a way to avoid the wrath that's coming for those who are disobedient. He bore that wrath, and that's what we're celebrating in this communion moment. So if you're not a follower of Christ, stay in your seat and pray. I'd love to talk with you after the service. If you are a follower of Jesus, then come and take communion. They'll be gluten-free in the middle. Every aisle will have people who are serving. We pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Help us now. Would you do work in our souls? Would you heal, invigorate, challenge, change, help? Would you comfort? Would you speak to us and speak through your sacrifice on our behalf to give us help? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.